things I've noticed is that whenever Avery Brooks has a chance to basically play off type, he does a lot, things a lot more emotively and a lot more... I'm not sure how to call it. Some people call it overacting, and again, I don't quite agree with that. But he does have a lot of uh, energy to his performance, and he does that a lot here when he's playing Gabriel Bell. I thought it was actually a nice touch. This episode doesn't really touch on the social and societal issues as much as the last one. I feel like I've already talked about this. Can I, can I share a quick story, though, just really quick? Please forgive me. So I actually covered the previous episode last night, and then I went to bed. But before I went to bed, I hung out with my friend Pax for a little bit. And I told him I was working on this episode. And he said, so let me guess. This is when you sat down and said, all right, I'm going to give some kind of economic lesson to people about this episode. And I, and I'm, I thought he was just kidding and poking fun at me. And then we there's a bit of a silence. He said, so what, what part of economics did you talk about? And I'm like, look, <laughs> it's not my fault. But there was economics to talk about. This episode's far more about the character side of things. Last episode, we were talking about the, the macroscopic. This is far more about the microscopic. There's two different dynamics of three different characters, and the way they inter interplay with each other and bounce off each other is actually really, really great. While the first episode has some problems, and I can't even quite say I like it, I do like this one quite a lot, probably because of that character dynamic. So the first character dynamic is between, between Bernardo, Vin, and Lee. Now, Bernardo, he's the, he's the archetypal example of, and each of these is an archetype, but, I mean, they have a small sample size and 44 minutes to work with, so I'm willing to forgive that in this case. He is the archetype of, I just want to go home, right? Basically, the ordinary guy who's got a family, who's got friends, you know, he, he just, this isn't my problem, I don't want to make a fuss, you know, he's not particularly antagonistic, but he's not really on their side either. He just wants to go home, okay? Is, is it quitting time yet? Please, right? That's that's him. Um, so pretty much straight down the middle, narrow bit there. Then we have Lee. Now, she is actually interesting uh, for two reasons. First of all, I love the fact that she, and I know this sounds so strange, but the actress does a good job of portraying someone who is legitimately terrified. I know that sounds weird and awful, but in my opinion, most actors don't know how to act terrified. Genuinely terrified, to the point where reason and logic start to break down. I've actually been that terrified in my real-life experiences before, and I know what it feels like. And it is basically a breakdown of your ability to think and reason. And it sucks. It's a horrible feeling. Um, and she portrays that fairly well, to the point where she is... You know, she's truly panicked. Not panicked in the generic word that some people t tend to use that word as if it means a greater sense of fear. No, panicked. Actual panic. And of course, hypoglycemic, which gives a chance for uh, Bashir to interact with her on a more direct and personal level and get to learn more about her. And she gives this wonderful story. This is great. She gets to talk about this one woman who came through. She had a warrant out for her arrest. And that woman had a warrant out because she abandoned her child because she could no longer take care of that child. And she was now being siphoned into here, into the district, because she couldn't take care of her child, right? That, that is what led to that problem. No home, no job, economics. So she let her through because she felt so bad for her. She got in a lot of trouble for that and nearly lost her job. And that's where things get interesting. See, Lee is the person who, you know, uh, Bernardo is the person right in the middle. Lee is the person who 
I know this is going to sound weird, but she's the one who doesn't care. I know that sounds strange, but I swear I'm going somewhere with this, because we've got the lack of caring, active not caring, and caring amongst the three of these people. It, you know, the, the, the dynamic there. Lee doesn't care. She is someone who obviously is not an evil person. None of these are evil people. In fact, one thing I will definitely give this episode is they go very far out of their way to make sure that none of these people are particularly bad guys, with the possible exception of the one SWAT guy who gets lines and the governor who we never actually meet or see, but is the one who ordered the SWAT attack. So those are the only bad guys in the whole episode, and that makes sense given the point of the episode, but moving on. So... The, uh, Lee is the person who, while she obviously does have sympathy for these people, this is just her job, and she doesn't say it, but the fact that she nearly lost her job over the fact that she let someone through kind of inclined her to stop letting people through, to stop caring, to stop thinking about it, because she needs her job. She needs her job. If she doesn't have her job, she'll be here too. She has a very direct and personal understanding of what not having a job means because she sees it every day. Now, <laughs> now that's, that may not sound... You may be like, well, well, hang on. She even says later on that I, I hope this, this needs shut down even though it means I'll be out of a job. Yes, that is the, <laughs> the overall arc of the story. Basically everyone, by the end of the episode, even the police detective shows signs of sympathy on this matter, seems to understand that this whole thing is a gargantuan mess, and it probably should be fixed. And as I pointed out last episode, it's not actually that easy of a thing to fix. But the starting point is still the same. Lack, you know, lack of caring, not uncaring, but actual lack of caring, uncaring in her because she's more self-interested in what it is. And that's no, no judgment, by the way. I want to make that very clear. I'm not trying to slant her as a bad person. But how many of you have ever played uh, Papers, Please? It's a, bit, it's a video game. It's a PC game. And I had to stop playing it. I had to stop playing it because it was actually hitting me in a way that I couldn't deal with. One of the predominant points of Papers, Please, is that you have a constant, constant series of moral choices. You have a choice to do your job, which is basically you are working for a soulless evil corporation, or nation, I should say, sorry, nation. I shouldn't call it a corporation. And you are a border patrol person. You're, you're the, you know, Papers, Please, right? And if you, I'm, I'm, I'm simp simplifying the game a little bit, but the point is, you get to play as Lee in that game. You get to play as the person who's processing people. If you screw up, it doesn't matter if you have a sob story. It doesn't matter if there's something, some legitimate reason. It doesn't matter if I sympathize with you. If I let you pass by, I get in trouble for that. If I get in too much trouble, I lose my job or I lose the ability to pay for my family and, and welfare. Right? That's the, there's a level of soul-sucking that exists when you are a person who has the capacity for sympathy for your fellow man, and yet you are forced in a daily operation to do everything you can to make life worse for your fellow man. Those kind of jobs, and I'm just going to, this is opinion, and please forgive me, but in my opinion, those kind of jobs are evil. Those kind of jobs are wrong. And whether or not they are debatably useful or serve a purpose or whatever is a massive field of gray I don't want to walk into. But forcing people to do this kind of thing on a regular basis is messed up, in my opinion. 
because it creates people like Lee. The, where the first time Lee finally g begins to care and share about the situation is during a hostage crisis by scared and desperate people. Anyways. <clears throat> so, uh, then we have Vin. Now, Vin's the most interesting one for me because Vin is a hardline cynic. And can I share something? And I'm sure I'm going to get some flack for this, but in my experience, most people who are truly bitter cynics are so bitter and so cynical because they are very caring individuals. Because things matter to them. And when things go badly, or when things are wrong, or when things don't work out, it bothers them. And that bitterness and that cynicism grows up like a cancer around them until they just try to use that as a way to deal with the fact that all of this garbage is going on. Um, he, Vin, the guy who plays Vin, I, I wrote down his name in the last episode. What's his damn name? Uh, Dick Miller does a really, really good job of Vin because he portrays that. What do you want me to say? Huh? That I care? That it matters to me? What good would it do? Right? And it's true. That's what makes it so brutal and so horrible. What the hell does his sympathy matter? It's not going to change or help anything. Once again, we also see the system grinding people down. I have a note here. It says cogs. We always talk about how, how horrible it is to be someone caught in the cogs of some great system. What I feel like we don't discuss enough in fiction is how horrible it is to be a cog grinding down other people in some great horrible system. And that is exactly what's going on with these three. I don't have actually as much to say about Vin, but his... I've heard some people say his character arc throughout this episode is unnatural. I don't agree at all. I think it is a very natural and smooth progression of basically him seeing that, God, just maybe just this once, just this once, maybe this will work out, and maybe this will actually affect some kind of real change, and I will have to stop doing this goddamn job every day. Right? Like, you can just see that in his performance. That's why I give the actor so much credits. And the way he actually goes out of his way and endangers himself literally, physically, and then functionally endangers his job in order to try and make these, these events turn out well, says a lot about the amount, the amount to which this guy gives a damn. As an aside, there's actually this really neat little scene where they're just talking about sports, and he's discussing baseball, and he turns to her, and no, he turns to uh, Bashir, and Bashir's like, no, I, I, I like tennis, actually, and turns to Lee, and she's like, I like soccer. <laughs> so Cisco, Bell, has to be the one to be like, oh, no, it's the king. <laughs> Sorry. It's a nice little scene. There's a lot of nice little scenes in this one. Now... Having praised those three characters, I now I'm going to pause before I talk about the next three characters and talk about a few events in the episode. Uh, first of all, why is their attempt at deducing what's going on with the time travel thing so haphazard and stupid? I know that I've already kind of ripped the time travel to shreds in these episodes, but they have about ten possible choices for where they could be in the timeline, and they have five jumps. So why don't they try to intellectual rather than just just going back and picking one? Why don't they try to work their way back and figure out an entry point? Remember, one of the ways they knew that uh, they weren't they were in the wrong era in a scene we unfortunately don't get to see is oh that's not history I've seen clearly history has been changed at that point in time right so 
work your way back until history is recognizable. That's just kind of logical. I'm a little surprised. At now, we all know why they actually did it this way. It's because they wanted to reference the original series. For those of you unaware, they actually have a direct and deliberate reference to uh, the uh, City on the Edge of Forever because they go back to the same era. And there's a little poster in the background, which is a recreated poster from City on the Edge of Forever. Although, wrong city, but yeah, maybe. And then, of course, they go back to the 60s because TOS 60s. Okay, references. <laughs> I get it, I get it. Anyways. Uh... Then there's the... What's the next point? Um, <laughs> there's this great bit where the detective... I can't remember her name. Please forgive me. Says, so, yeah, the so the mayor says... Actually, the governor. It was the governor, not the mayor. Uh, let me actually rewind because this actually gives us a little bit of insight into the governor. The governor says, we will reduce the charges on all of you if you all give yourselves up and release the hostages right now. Oh, and I'll form a committee to look into it later. Now, anybody who has ever been involved in corporate politics or governmental politics knows that forming a committee to look into us is basically, yeah, no, I'm not going to really do anything about it. Sometimes, I will admit, sometimes stuff actually comes out of those formed committees. But for the most part, that's just business speak or whatever for, yeah, just, just sweep that under the rug and not think about it again. That, in my mind, gives us an excellent amount of characterization for the governor's mindset here. One of the things that uh, I believe Iris Stephen Bear complained about was that months later people were saying we didn't, that they didn't show the other side of the argument. That this is too, uh, I forget which political party. This is too insert political party here. I get them all confused. And I, I deliberately don't keep track, so whichever one it is. And I, he found that idea ridiculous. But I have to admit... I do kind of agree, but at the same time, I also... The reason I agree is because they portray the people who are on the other side of the equation as as the bad guys. As I already mentioned, the governor and the SWAT team are clearly the bad guys in several ways. Because, not, not because they necessarily are the bad guys in-universe, but because of the way they are portrayed in the episode. But again, let's get back to that governor, okay? So the governor, the bad guy here... He has this mindset that these people are only interested in themselves and that this is all about their own selfish desire. And therefore, the best way to placate them is to try and offer them a bone. Not to address the larger issue, not because there's any belief that there's a larger problem here. In other words, it's not just that he doesn't think the governor, by his presentation, by what we learn about him, or maybe it's a she, I don't actually remember if they say he or she, eh, whatever, um, the governor... It says, uh, it isn't just saying that this is, this, this whole sanctuary thing is not a problem. It's more a refusal to acknowledge the sanctuaries in general, which is the point and one of the biggest points about the episode that so many people say, don't worry, it's not your fault. It's too big of an issue to deal with. Just don't think about it. Right? They, they hammer that point in over and over, and that's one of the biggest problems, or at least the, the episode posits the idea that that's one of the biggest reasons why this problem got so bad. So the governor's just like, yeah, sure, I'll give you a lighter sentence. Now go home and go away. What? What about, what about the actual district? What about the now? Okay. There's one thing that's called the Federal Employment Act. I'm just going to take a moment to say that the idea that a Federal Employment Act is going to resolve the situation is, is kind of silly. But at the same time, there's a possibility of some good being done there. And all I'm going to say is that I already had the economics discussion last week, so let's just move on. Anywho, 
So they form a committee... And then Dax gets in finally and reunites with them through the sewers. I love BC's expression. You, you went through the sewers for these guys? Damn, you must really like them. It's just, just You could just see the shock on his face. Like, wow, caring for another person that much. You feel like it's kind of an alien thought to him, right? One other side note before we talk about the other two characters, or the other, the other character dynamic. Dax convinces uh, Brenner, the media guy, to open up and allow them to get access to the internet and to get their story out. At the end of the episode, time has been reverted to exactly the same state that it was supposed to be originally. Do I need to keep going? (laughs) I mean, the very idea that time reverts to exactly the same thing is actually kind of ludicrous in its own right because of how much these people have interacted with how many people they've interacted with. But in addition to that, how the hell did they get their story out last time? In the, in the original, see, again, this is one of the reasons why I say that if you had to include the time travel, doing type 1 time travel would have worked better. Because the idea then is that Dax always convinced Brenner to get the word out, which always led to greater public awareness of this, which always led to the reforms that came afterwards. As is, I'm left thinking, how the hell did this ever get out with just Bell and that's it? You know, no, in, no interaction by Starfleet personnel. I don't know. Anyways, anyways. I do want to give special praise to the episode. As, if anything, I kind of wish they did more of this, but they have this individual stories thing. There's a bunch of people in a line. We only hear two of the people. We don't need to hear all of them, and so I, I'm okay with that. But we, it's just a person who stands up and says, Hi, my name's Bob, and this is my job, and you know this is where I've been working, and I was laid off from this job. Basically, and then it cuts to the next person. Hi, my name's Bobina. And, you know, this is my story. The individual stories element of the episode is probably one of its best points. And I love the idea that that, more than anything, would actually get public attention. Because it would. In my blunt opinion, too often one of the biggest problems with regards to uh, ignoring or demonizing issues when it comes to societal problems or cultural problems or whatever, I'm trying really hard not to be preachy here, just, just my opinion, is the lack of humanization. The distancing. I've talked so many times about the, the, how do you distance yourself from your actions. And the more you distance it, the easier it is to do, right? Seeing individual faces with individual voices, with individual stories, and each one of those telling an individual perspective on this event, that is the kind of thing that will reach people. Not all people, but enough. And I do like that. And again, kind of makes me wonder why they didn't just go with the type 1 type role. But anyways, anyways, let's talk about the other character dynamic, which is Cisco, BC, and Webb. Now, again, we see that all three of these kind of find fit a nice little niche here. Cisco's actually an amusing one, because Cisco is actually playing a role here, but it's a role that Cisco does every day of his life and has been doing every day since he came on board the station back in Emissary. He is the person who is diplomatic, but firm, militant, but peaceful. He has to strike that balance point. He has a shotgun, which he cocks several times dramatically. It's really funny. But he's got the shotgun, and he is willing to hurt people, and he's willing to stand up to people, and he's willing to to draw a hard line. This is a line in the sand. We're not crossing this. But he also has no desire to hurt any of these people, and actively goes out of his way to defend and protect them on a regular basis. It's a nice balance point, and it is a perfect fit for Cisco, which... I'm going to leave that dead horse alone for now. Webb is, of course, the obvious one. Webb's the everyman, right? 
He's 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 a resident O'Brien for this circumstance. He's the guy who's got a son, who's got a family, who just really is frustrated at this whole thing. He's not violent and he's not a criminal. He's just someone who wants to try and have the situation fixed. He is also the idealist of the trio. He is someone who. Let me rephrase that a little bit. When I say idealist, I actually don't mean that in the way I, I've said it. So let me try and use my words more specifically here. He is the idealist who... I don't want to call him naive, because that's not him. He's the idealist... I guess I'm just going to leave him at, at that. He is just the idealist. He is someone who really believes that this situation can be resolved on a macroscopic scale. He is someone who looks at this as a societal problem, not an individual problem, which then helps to contrast him with BC, who is someone who looks at this from a microscopic perspective, his own perspective, and he has to be convinced about the greater significance of this. That being said, it's not like BC is stupid. And I want to give very special praise to the presentation of BC in this episode. Apparently, they spent a lot of effort on him, and it shows. Uh, Frank Military does a great job of the role. And BC himself comes across as someone who is dangerous and a little bit unhinged, but that's not it. That's not all there is to him. He is not a one-note character. He does have layers to him. He is willing to bargain with these people. He is willing to be diplomatic. He is someone who actually thinks things out. One of the biggest reasons why he asks for money and a ticket is not because he is selfish, but because he doesn't think the macroscopic problem can be resolved. Jobs? Do you want jobs? What are you going to do when there are no jobs? Right? And you could just hear in his presentation and the way he talks that he's not blind to this. In fact, quite the contrary, he's probably more cognizant of the problem than Webb is. That's why I was struggling with my wording there. Because... BC obviously does care and is more cognizant of the of the problem. He is actually probably the. I I think I'm going to go ahead and go ahead and call Webb naive because Webb just thinks we just have to do the simple things and it works. BC, by contrast, has a more clear understanding that that won't work. He tries anyways, basically just because he's he's like, all right, fine, you've convinced me. And it's not like he really wants to hurt anybody. Not really. The only person he ever has a grief with is Vin, and I find that hysterical. Because remember, Vin's the one who cares, and BC is the one who understands just how messed up things are. So you can kind of see how those two personalities would completely bounce off of each other, right? Yeah, they're also both very bitter and very cynical. I think one of the best things I like about the episode, though, is that it tries to showcase the... How do I put this? The extent to which this is a personal tragedy. I kind of already mentioned that. But we see in BC someone who we get hints of someone who is smart, of someone who probably had some kind of job or some kind of um, career plan going on. Like, he said, you know, he has, there are no jobs, at least not for people like us. I get the really strong impression that BC is someone who was fired not because the job didn't exist, sorry about the lawnmower, not because the job didn't exist, but because he was just unfit for it, or because they wanted to hire someone else, or because maybe there was some nepotism going on. I mean, I've seen that happen, family-owned businesses, hello. And, and he, just, he just dumped here, and so it's like, all right, well, that sucks. And you could just see the man, like with the cynicism and bitterness thing, just kind of devolving into this more violent persona as a consequence. I do like that. A lot. 
I like this episode. And I'm going to go ahead and cut this off because the lawn mowing is getting worse. So I hope you've enjoyed, and I'll see you guys next time.